Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Our reading this morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 26. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt it in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you. All right. So if you have been with us since Easter, you have been through the first ten chapters of the Gospel of Mark. And you know from what we've talked about in the past that 
this uh, event that we begin this week it has been coming, and that we have been looking forward to it. This is the final week of Jesus' uh, ministry. This is the week in Jerusalem. This is the week that will end with his crucifixion. And that the next week will begin with his resurrection, which we live in. We know that this week has been coming. We have been prepared with many different uh, portents of doom. Three predictions by Jesus of what would happen to him here. Several visitors from Jerusalem coming up and interfering with his ministry, trying to uh, cast aspersions upon Jesus and who he is. And so we know that coming to Jerusalem is a fateful, fateful experience. Judgment looms. And as we look at this, cha- at this uh, particular passage and as we go through uh, the weeks uh, ahead, as we go through these different sections in Mark, we are going to see that judgment lays over everything. And also, tragedy. Tragedy. Because this should have been the week of supreme joy. This is the story of Jesus, the Son of God, the long-promised Messiah, finally coming to his city and his temple. They should have been prepared. They should have come to this moment and burst into praise and joy and worship. But what do we find? We find at the center of the temple hard-heartedness. We find unreceptivity. We find pride and a lack of humility. And we find conflict rather than reception. I believe that we have a way of looking at this text that keeps us completely out of the sights of of the Scriptures. We can talk about how boneheaded and self-centered and wrong-minded and off-track Jerusalem and the Jewish leadership was, and we can look at them and say, how possibly could you have done that? But I don't believe that is the right way for us to see this text. I believe that there is a way that we are supposed to look at this text that calls for us to consider ourselves as addressed by the text. And that is the question... Are we responding to the Lord's visit as we should? The Lord's long-awaited coming, are we receiving the Lord as we should? Or do we find in the reception of Jerusalem frightening similarities to ourselves? Are we experiencing in worship, in the time that we come to be together with the Lord... All that God has for us? Or have we allowed rote tradition to separate us from the heart of the experience of worship? I believe this text poses to us the timeless question for the people of God how are we to respond to the visit of our Lord? And I believe as we look through this text, we're going to see uh, three. Uh, things that we must uh, do in answer to Christ's visit, to the visit of Jesus. Uh, these are laid out in the text very much in the, in the order that the, 
the text develops. But there are three answers that we all must look into ourselves and say, is this my answer to the Lord's visit? And if it is not, then we need to take the warning that comes to Jerusalem, the experience of Jerusalem, and apply that as a warning to ourselves so that we can respond to the Lord's visit and experience the joy that he has for us. Let us now look first at that first answer that Jesus' visit should call us to. Jesus' visit should call us to praise. First and foremost, it should call us to praise. And if you're following in the text, we're looking at the first 11 verses, what is often headed as the triumphal entry. You see, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, and he is coming in a very particular way. He is entering Jerusalem not as a, as a peasant. He's entering Jerusalem not simply as a Jewish worshiper for Passover. He is entering Jerusalem as a king, as the king. He is entering Jerusalem with the right to rule. We see this very clearly in how he comes into Jerusalem. He asks for a particular cult to be brought to him so that he can ride that colt into the city. Nobody at Passover week rode transportation into Jerusalem. It was a foot journey. It was by foot that you went into Jerusalem for this holy feast of Passover. But that's not how Jesus comes. He says that he is going to be coming on a colt. And he gives special arrangements for that colt. This is the only time in Jesus' life where we know that he took an animal to ride. He, he has been on foot everywhere else, but he specifies that he needs a colt to be brought to him, a colt that no one has ever rid before. Why is he so specific about needing a colt that has never been ridden before to enter into the city of Jerusalem? The reason is because Jesus is coming explicitly as the Messiah unmistakably as the Messiah. So as you go back to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, every Jew that was in the circumstance, in the surrounding of this event, would have said, this looks like something. This reminds me of some teaching that I have heard from the Word of God. And whether they knew the exact verse or not, many would. These were the verses that are being fulfilled. Zechariah 9, verse 9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is coming in on the colt so that he can make everybody know who's paying attention I am fulfilling this messianic prophecy. I am coming as none other than the long-awaited king, the Messiah. And obviously, this was properly interpreted because of the way he is welcomed. People who see him coming on a colt, they immediately throw their their, uh, cloaks in front of him. They throw palm branches and other vegetation on his path. The meaning of that is a, a royal welcome. You can go back to the, to the book of, of uh, Second Kings and you can see the same behavior being done when the king Jehu was enthroned. They put their cloaks and leaves underneath him so that 
Everybody was, was participating in the coming of the king. And then third, we see his coming as a king in that uh, he receives the praise of the crowd. The crowd see him. His disciples see him. And they uh, speak back and forth to one another uh, from, from the Psalms, from Psalm 118, where they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They were saying this in response to Jesus' coming on the cult. They recognized immediately this is what was happening. And unique at this point in Jesus' ministry is the fact that he doesn't silence this. He doesn't say, don't do this. We have seen many times him keeping his messianic identity a secret. When Peter first confessed him in Mark chapter 8, he said, don't tell anyone about this. But the days of secrets are over. Jesus Jesus is now here to disclose himself, to make himself known. He wants everyone who has eyes to see and ears to hear to recognize that the Jesus himself is the king coming to his city to his people. Now think, how great is this moment? If you are Jewish, if you are an Israelite, if you have been living in Jerusalem or in the the area of Judea or Galilee, and suddenly you see these prophecies being fulfilled, you see this one who has been rumored as the Messiah finally taking upon the mantle and saying, I am that Messiah coming in to Jerusalem as they live under the oppression of the Romans, as they have lived for hundreds of years, speaking of the hope that was supposed to come. And here, it is being fulfilled. They see it. What a great moment. They are visibly part of. And so what do they do? What what can they do when they see this moment in fulfillment, when they see their long-awaited Lord visiting them? They burst out into praise. They burst out into praise. Uncontrolled, excited praise. That is what we see as they, as they sing out Psalm 118. We, say, we hear the, the, the word behind the, the, their singing is crazo. Uh, it's, it's shout. It, it's the same word that was used for Bartimaeus In the last chapter, when he cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. How heartfelt do you think Bartimaeus' cry was when he he heard that the Son of David is walking by, the one that can heal you of your blindness? How full of heart and volume and excitement do you think Bartimaeus' cry was? I bet you there was nothing held back. And we are told that as the Jerusalemites, as the Israelites see their Lord coming, they shout with the same word, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the natural response to the joyful heart. Is it not? I I was... uh, uh, went to the restaurant walk-ons, uh, not last Saturday, but the Saturday before that. Uh, LSU was playing Auburn. 
and there was a good chance we were going to win the game, right? And I was there, and I was not dressed correctly. Apparently, there's a uniform on Saturday. We all wear purple and gold. I was in a royal shirt, so I didn't look the part. But we sat there. We had our, our, uh, our dinner, and uh, you didn't have to tell these people, cheer, be excited, raise your voices, shout out loud when the score comes. And then, as, as, uh, as they got ahead at one point, they just started, they just erupted in singing the alma mater. Every single one of them just joined in to the alma mater of LSU. This was the response of a joyful heart to a winning football team. I remember when I was a, a little kid, I was just like five, six, seven, my mom was turning 40 years old. My dad bought her a special present. He bought her a diamond ring. Don't get your expectations up. <laughs> but that's what my dad did. Uh, and I was uh, so excited that my mom was going to get a diamond ring. She was going to get this beautiful, you know, sparkly diamond that when I was taking the shower before school that morning, I couldn't help but sing. I sing the stupid song, my mom's going to get a diamond ring. I just couldn't, I mean, it was just such great news. And I was so excited to sing, my mom's going to get a diamond ring. And I sang that as loud as I could until like three or four minutes afterwards. I said, oh, what if mom's listening? <laughs> she never told me that she heard, but there's a, a pretty good indication that she could hear my singing. But I sang because my heart was full of joy. It wasn't, it wasn't filtered. It wasn't held back. That is the natural response of a joyful heart. So what about us? Here, Sunday morning, Worshiping the Lord who has visited us and purchased us, cried, I thirst for us. He is here with us. He visits us. He is Emmanuel, always Emmanuel, God with us because he is the ransom for many. What about us? Are we shouting for joy? Are we singing with great exultation? Are we praising him? The book of Hebrews, very close to its finish, reflects on what Jesus has done to him and uh, done for us and says Hebrews 13, 15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That's what Jesus' visit should create in us. A continual praise to God, the fruit of our lips. Acknowledging through song and word, the Lord has come, the Lord has saved us. Now I understand I'm getting to a very sensitive area here. I'm getting to the question of how should we worship? How visible should our worship be? How 
motivated, animated should it be? I, I can't answer that for you. I'm not here to answer that for you. But I can tell you that this is not an acceptable answer. That's just not for me. Singing is just not for me. Worshiping and praising is just not for me. That's just not, that's just not what I do. Because when you go to the book of Revelation, here's what you will experience. Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. John writes, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, creatures and the elders, uh, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Or maybe it was like this. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. I don't know. Which one do you think it is? And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and on all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So if, if your contention is, that's just not for me then heaven is not for you. Because there's nobody outside of that community. Everybody is shouting and praising and worshiping their Savior. I think the question, I think the thing is, I think of what holds me back from worship. It really comes down to this. Where is my gaze? Is my gaze upon myself? And how I look? Is my gaze upon others and what they're doing or, or not doing? And how I might look to them? You see, the difference in Revelation is the gaze is upon the one who purchased them. The one who is full of splendor. The one who possesses the beauty of holiness. So captivating is the gaze of their Lord who is visiting them in their presence that they lose sight of everyone else. And all they are are worshipers praising God at the tops of their voice. And I wonder, where is our gaze on Sunday morning? When the Lord comes to visit, we are we begin every worship service with the call to worship. That's intentional for us to say, okay, I am, I am not here to check an hour off my list. I am here because I have been summoned by the Lord and I am going to worship him. As we read this morning, we are going to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. We are going to tremble before him all the earth. My friends, if that is our vision, we will tremble. And we will worship. We must fix our gaze upon the one who has visited us. And that will call us to praise. Now second, the second answer 
that I hope we find in ourselves as we consider the Lord's visit is Jesus' visit calls us to humility. Jesus' visit calls us to humility. And here we we look at this very uh, well-known passage of Jesus' cleansing of the temple or clearing of the temple and this bizarre passage of a fig tree that was at the wrong place at the wrong time. (laughs) Poor, Poor tree. There are many commentators, honestly, who spend a lot of time feeling sorry for that tree. I'm not here to feel sorry for the tree. I think the tree served a purpose. And in the extent that it served God's purpose, it got glory to God. And that's more than most trees can, uh, can claim. But it gave it, itself up pretty early, that's for sure. But we have this, this passage. We have the fig tree. We have the temple. We go back to the fig tree. We see that Jesus visits his people with the right to judge. And that is the key thing that we understand as we look at these verses of the fig tree and the temple. Before we get into that, though, I I want us to to recognize some of the the suspense that is happening. We we know that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. We know that Jesus has announced to his disciples that he's going to be betrayed by the leaders of Israel. But there's something else that's going on. Back in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, we are told this. This is the last book of the Old Testament. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, if you uh, have been paying close attention to the Gospel of Mark, the first half of that verse is the very uh, second verse of Mark chapter 1, verse 2. These words, I send Uh, my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That was speaking of John the Baptist. But the question for the reader is, okay, so the messenger has come, John the Baptist has come. What about the rest of Malachi chapter 3? The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Oh, what is going to happen when the Lord suddenly comes to his temple? And that is what is happening Right here, we have had this suspense building. Jesus is moving to Jerusalem. Jesus is moving to a confrontation with the temple. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 is drumming in their heads. Oh my goodness, what's going to happen when the Lord visits his temple? A lot of suspense. And then Mark, I think Mark has a sense of humor. Here's what happens when the Lord visits his temple. Verse 11. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Nothing. A whole bunch of anticlimax. What's going on? What? There's supposed to be some excitement there. And nothing happens. I believe that Mark has inserted an extra beat for us to experience with uh, Jesus the great disappointment that came when Jesus visited the temple. Huh. Sigh. What is going on? So what is going on? As Jesus decides to go back to the temple the next day after having looked around and leaving, he comes to this fig tree, sees this fig tree full of of leaves, beautiful fig tree, enticing fig tree, and he's hungry. So he comes up to the fig tree to find a fig. But as he pulls apart the leaves, there are no figs. And he gets angry. 
And he says, no one's going to eat from this fig tree again. Then Jesus goes to the temple. He does some stuff at the temple. And then he comes back to the fig tree. And Peter says, look, the fig tree is all withered up. Now, have we seen Mark do this before where he starts one story, goes to another story, and then comes back to finish that previous story? We've seen this before. It's called a sandwich, Mark and Sandwiches. So Mark has put the fig tree's curse and the fig tree's conclusion right around as bookends of what he's doing at the temple. And the reason he's doing that is the, 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 Mark wants you to say what is happening to the fig tree is actually what is, Jesus is doing to the temple. We need to read these side by side. What is happening to the fig tree is it is being judged because it is barren. And what is going to be happening to the temple is it is also going to be judged for its barrenness. Go to the, the next slide. We have a picture. Here's, 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 a, here's what the temple mount looked like. Uh, in Jesus' day. And this is the, 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 the side that Jesus would have been seeing as he comes down the Mount of Olives. This is a gorgeous, ornate, beautiful building, considered one of the top seven in the first century. Herod built this temple. It was a monument to his, his greatness. It was a monument to the, to the Jewish people. It was fascinating. And, and here's the thing. The temple is up on the mountain. Light reflects off of it. It is glorious. It has splendor. And you can see it from miles in every direction. It is the apex of Jerusalem. And so what is happening? Jesus and his band of disciples are coming up over the Mount of Olives. And they can see this fascinating, gorgeous temple. And they are walking foot by foot by foot. Three, four miles per hour, not very fast, but in front of them is this beautiful temple. And Jesus is going to come up to that temple. He's going to look around. And when he looks around, he is going to have the same heart-dropping experience that he has when he goes up to that fig tree covered in lush leaves and finds no fig in it. You see, these two things are happening the same way. He's coming to the temple. As he comes to the fig tree, what he sees at the fig tree reflects what he sees at the temple. Okay? So we see that his journey comes to showing a barren fig tree, and it comes to show a barren temple. So Jesus judges the fig tree because it did not bear fruit. Now, it does say it was not the season for early figs, which is a strange thing to put in there. Uh, it causes a lot of consternation. But the best understanding I have been able to come to that is that these fig trees had uh, two seasons of figs, the early figs and the late figs. And that if this tree was going to be bearing fruit at the time that Jesus came to look at it, there would have been evidence of early figs, which, which are edible. So that's, I guess, what we have to say about that. The point is, is, uh, is not really about the season for figs. The point, though, is the appearance of health, the appearance of fruitfulness, and the barrenness that it hid. Because that is what Jesus saw when he comes to the temple. And so when we read the, the, the judgment on the fig tree, we must recognize that it is symbolic of the judgment of the temple itself. If you go to Mark chapter 13, verse 2, you're going to be told this. Jesus said to them, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is not cleansing the temple. 
That's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. The, the temple is being judged. And it's not the temple that's being judged, it's the corruption of the temple. But all the same, the temple is taking the judgment. Why, why is it barren? What, is, what has happened to the temple? We can see as we look at this text, it's been corrupted by pride. Look at verse 17 with me. Verse 17. Jesus was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Jesus is announcing through two Old Testament scriptures that what he sees in the temple is a temple that has been corrupted by the pride of the leadership. And he is seeing that corruption in two key ways. First of all, in the fact that the temple is showing no love for the neighbor. And the second, that it is actually showing no true love for God. When he talks about the neighbor, he quotes from Isaiah 56, 7, which, which is telling us that the, the temple is to be a, a house of prayer for all nations. And he comes in and he sees that this... Uh, go to the next slide. I have to show one more picture. Actually, go back to the last slide. That's actually... Yeah. All right, so uh, for us to understand what's going on, Jesus is coming into that big open area uh, around the temple. The temple is the, the section right there in the middle. But that big open pavilion that's all around the temple, that was called the court of the Gentiles. And Gentiles were welcome to come to the temple of God as long as they stayed in that area. The, the temple in the middle had courts that were uh, increasing in their holiness and only Jewish people could go into there. But that big outer court was called the court of the Gentiles. So anybody from any nation was welcome to come to the temple and spend their time there in prayer to the one true God. Except the first century Jewish leadership said, you know what, that's a lot of wasted space. And if we leave that space open like that, Gentiles are going to show up. So here's what we're going to do. Let's fill that space with some stinky animals. Let's fill that space with uh, some money changers Let's make that the most busy and chaotic space that we can find. It'll be great. Gentiles aren't going to mess around with it because it's so noisy and distracting. And it's going to save all the Jewish people, all the people God really loves, a lot of time. Because now they can just get their sacrificial animal and go straight into the temple. Okay? So we're going to do that instead. And so when Jesus gets there, he sees the court of the Gentiles absolutely being overrun by the traders and the merchants. And because of that, the purpose of this section of the temple to be a place of prayer for the Gentiles was being denied. You see, the Gentiles were being shown by all of this that they were unwelcome. The Gentiles were being crowded out by the pride of self-interest. It's really about us. It's not really about the Gentiles. So let's use their Gentile space for us. I think as we look at this first corruption by pride, we do well to ask ourselves the question, how are we doing at welcoming people? How are we at welcoming people here to worship? Are we, are we, are we inviting? Are we encouraging? Do we present a welcome atmosphere I can't answer these questions. I, I don't know, but the, question, the, the, the experience that I guess I have had that has surprised me is as I have people together at my house, I just kind of make a mixture of people, how few of us actually know each other. 
and even how long we've been here. Some of us have been here for more than 10 years, and, and there are people in this room that we don't even know, and there's not that many people. So my question for us, are we welcoming? Are we welcoming one another? Are we getting to know each other? Sometimes I wonder if we have assigned seats, to be blunt. I know where all of you are going to sit next week. Maybe it's time to show our welcome by moving around the room a little bit. By saying hello to people that you don't know. Because when that culture begins to develop, people that we don't know will come and they will feel welcomed and they will worship with us and they will hear the news of the living God. There is a great power in just welcoming one another. Are there ways that we can do that, practical ways? Maybe next week, pick a different section. Your chair already smells like you, so stink up another chair. You know? (laughs) You know what I'm saying. Romans chapter 15, verse 7. This is the the gospel. The gospel is hospitality. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let us strive to do that. That images the gospel. But the second thing we see that the the leadership not doing, they're they're not loving their neighbor well because they're caught up in self-interest. But the second we see they're not loving God how are they not loving God? They're not loving God because they have been crowded, they've crowded him out by the pride of self-righteousness. Jesus says that they have become a den of robbers. A den of robbers. That's where everybody goes to be safe after they've committed their crimes. You go back to the den, uh, the robber goes back to the den after he's committed his crimes. He is saying that the leadership of Israel has made the temple, the holy place of God, a hiding place for crooks and criminals and unrighteous people because they're coming to the temple, they're saying, we're safe here, and they're not actually close to God. They have made God's house a den of robbers. And what are they doing that's making this place a den of robbers? The gist of it is, that they have reduced religion from any sort of relationship to God to an exercise in law-abiding and transactional encounters. They they fulfill the law, and they consider themselves righteous by their legal standards, and they come to the temple, they give a sacrifice, because that's what the law says, but it's entirely transactional. It doesn't have anything to do with their relationship. Their sacrifice has about as much covenant with God as our exchanging cash with a Walmart cashier. There's no relationship there. It's just an exchange. I need forgiveness. I'll give you an animal. We're good. But God has been separated from his temple, from the worship of his temple. And that is what uh, Jesus is saying when he calls them a den of robbers. You are coming here without a heart connected to God. Your, your lips say the right things, but your heart is far from God. That was his condemnation in Mark chapter 7, verse 6. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. How, how substantial is their pride? How far are they from God? Look at verse 18. Look at verse 18. 
Jesus has just read two scriptures, one from Isaiah and one from Jeremiah. And the chief priests, verse 18, and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. They were seeking a way to destroy him. He has just preached to them the word of God, an apt word of God. And they do not respond as a faithful Jew who believes that the word of God is the word of their covenant Lord. He does not, they do not respond to them with repentance. Like, oh my goodness, you were absolutely right. We have allowed our self-interest to destroy the purpose of the court of Gentiles. Oh my goodness, you're right. We have become a den of robbers. We have no relationship with the covenant head of this house. You are right and we repent. No. They get their daggers. And they plot, how are we going to destroy the man that is making a nuisance and a noise that is getting in the way of us doing the things that we do? They do not respond with repentance, but anger. Let me say, if you are close to the Lord, if you understand the word of God as a, as a word written to, to bring you closer in holiness, to love you through warning you from sin, then the word is a call to repent to closer faithfulness. But if it's actually generating anger in you, it is showing showing the pride of self-righteousness. That is the reason that we spend so much time on Sunday morning in the preaching of the word. It is why we are committed to expository preaching. It is because this is God's word to you to respond in repentance to be closer in faithfulness, to avoid the hazards of sin, to behold the glory of your Lord and Savior. How do we listen to the sermon? Is this a time that you are loving God with your heart, mind, and soul? Is your heart coming ready to repent at what God's word has to say to us? That is what it means to come When Jesus visits to come with humility, Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2, gives us such a great image of what happens when we come to him with humility. Thus says the Lord, Isaiah 66 says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. This temple and all of its beauty... It doesn't mean anything. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You see, he comes to those who are humble and contrite, who are welcoming and receptive to his word. Now, number three. The third answer that we must have to profit from Jesus' visit, Jesus' visit calls us to personal relationship. Jesus calls us to personal relationship. The critical question that is raised as Jesus judges the temple is this. If if Jesus condemns the temple, and and the temple was the only way that the people had uh, to bring sacrifices to God, to experience forgiveness and peace with God, then how does one come to God with the temple being destroyed, with a temple being overthrown. Well, that is why it is so important for us to to fixate on these last four verses, verse 22 to 26, because Jesus was not, uh, judgment was not Jesus' final word. 
The temple fell because Jesus has come to give us a better way. There's one other thing that Jesus is going to take out of this temple, not just the money changers, not just the sacrificial animals. There's one more thing before the week is over that Jesus is going to take out of this temple. He is going to take out the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. The veil that stands between God and his holiness and mankind and all of their sinfulness. The veil that says, because you are sinners, you cannot come in to my presence. That veil that has stood for centuries to declare you are sinful and you do not come into the presence of a holy God because a holy God will destroy you. Jesus, before this week is over, is going to destroy that veil. In Mark chapter 15, we read these words, verses 37 and 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple, the veil, was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, Jesus judges the temple because he has come to take away the separation that the temple always reminded us of. Our sin and his holiness. In Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, he will tear the veil so that in him and in him alone there is no longer any separation between God's people and himself. It is because Jesus came to give his life on the cross that the temple is no longer required. It is because Jesus came and said these words in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus has removed the veil because he is the way, the only way to God. And so when Jesus visits, he calls us to a personal relationship. Have faith in God, he says in verse 22. You see, Jesus' visit calls us to a personal relationship. He directs his disciples not to the sacrificial system, not to the money changers. He directs his disciples to faith, prayer, and forgiveness, which is found in God, verse 25, your Father. There is a whole other way of knowing God. We know him as our father because of Jesus' death and resurrection for us. And so what this means is that because Jesus visited us and took our sins upon him on the cross and removed the veil and has opened up a way of knowing God personally by faith, prayer, and forgiveness, that we must respond to him with personal relationship. A personal relationship like a relationship within the family, like a father to a son, a father to a daughter. Worship is not external. Worship is not stuff outside of us. Worship is an act of the heart. As John 4.24, Jesus tells us, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You see, when we worship God, it's, it's not about going through a particular list of things. It's not about saying, I did it. It's about what your heart is into, what your heart is bringing, what your heart is giving. Listen, 
Jesus welcomes you into a personal relationship. He does the impossible for you. You Go back to Mark chapter 10 where the rich man walks away and Jesus says, for man it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible for God. So when Jesus says here in this last passage that if anyone believes in their heart and does not doubt, it will be true. I believe first and foremost he is speaking of the prayer of faith that trusts Jesus Christ alone to be the all-sufficient sacrifice, to remove the sins, to remove the curtain that separates you from a holy God and welcomes you into his presence, not simply as forgiven, but as a son and a daughter. He does the impossible, and he makes that yours by faith alone. He makes us children of God, forgiven of all of our debts. We simply must ask in faith, and it will be certainly done. My friends, the Lord has come to his people. Let us come to him in praise, in humility, and in personal faith. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.